The wisdom of God in the individual's life is like the wisdom of God among the nations. And that's Psalm 1 and 2. How happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does, he prospers. Not so the wicked, but they are like the chaff which the wind drives away, and therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is wisdom and folly for the individual human being. And it says in this Hebrew proverbial poetic wisdom psalm, it says that there is really there are really two ways. There's relating to God and the alternative. The God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The only way to him is through the Messiah of Israel, Jesus the Messiah. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Psalm 2 is about him. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. The, The rulers take counsel together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Yet he who sits in the heavens laughs. The master, the Adonai, scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And that king then speaks in the poetry that opens the Psalter. He says, I will surely tell of the decree of Yahweh. He said to me, You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Just as with Psalm 1, there are two ways. With the nations in Psalm 2, there are really two ways. Fear God or the alternative. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship Yahweh with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun that he not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Yet how happy are all who take refuge in him. The bookends of Psalm 1 and 2, one message of the two ways between individuals and God and the nations and God, the bookends are the consequence of fearing God. How happy is the man? How happy is the nation? How happy are we? Because we have a personal relationship with God that is through the work of Christ on the cross and equipped and sustained and empowered by the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who fills us with the word of Christ richly dwelling within us when we avail ourselves to that. I always offer you a moment of silent prayer to make sure you are walking in the light as God himself is in the light. And if not, it's time to confess. That's to name our sins to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise you for these times of pausing to think about who we are, who you are, and what you've said about us, what you've expected, where we've fallen short, and where we've been successful. Father, every fault that we bear is our own, and every success is your grace through us. And we praise you that you're successful and glorified even in our lives despite our failures. Father, tonight, help us to understand you better, your dealings with Israel your dealings with all the nations, 
and your revelation of yourself, which is a horrible thing, a terrible, fearful thing for those who are opposed to you, but is marvelous and life for us as we pay attention. Help us know you better. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Cut this thing. I'm getting shadows. So uh, let's take a, a vote as we get started on a very formal message of Isaiah 22, the Valley of Vision. Who is for a little bit of ceiling fan in the room? Who's opposed to it? Good. Ceiling fan wins unanimously. And as far as you're concerned, everybody at home anonymously. And uh, let's get, thank you, Joel. All right. I think I know the answer to the riddle. What in the world does Isaiah mean by calling Jerusalem the Valley of Vision? And his oracle to the nations, the fourth one in both cycles, is about God's people. In Isaiah 17, he talked about the northern kingdom in that first cycle of five national oracles. And on the second cycle, in this chunk of Isaiah 13 through 23, the second cycle, the fourth one is again God's people, but this time Judah, the southern kingdom. He's prophesying their coming destruction, and he says the reason. He says the reason is because of where their attention lies. Let's hear it in English. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the roof, to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together, they've been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, although though they had fled far away. Therefore I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. That's what Isaiah says. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. And then the choicest valleys were full of chariots. The horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate, and he removed the defense of Judah. And that day you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. What's the house of the forest? We have an answer. We do have an answer in First Kings, but we'll, we'll get to it. You saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and you collected the waters of the lower pool, and you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. You made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool, but you did not depend on him who made it, nor did you take into consideration him who planned it long ago. And that verse 11 tells you what Isaiah means by the valley of vision, but you wouldn't get it in English because they changed the meanings of the words that are given in Hebrew. He gives you two verbs of God's accusation of Judah that are verbs of seeing. The first is, is navah, to see or to regard, and the other is, is uh, uh, ra'ah, to see or to look at. And they translate it, interpreting for you in this interpretive paraphrase, New American Standard. They said, you do not depend, you do not give consideration. But these are the two verbs that tell you what is the valley of vision. Judah does not look at their creator. They are distracted and focused elsewhere. And this is one of the leading issues that pulls you out of the worship of God into idolatry. Where are you looking? 
is the challenge of the Valley of Vision. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping and wailing and shaving the head and wearing sackcloth. But since you're not looking at him, instead, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Ever heard that little saying? Well, that's, that's scriptural. But it's people under a ban, under a curse, saying that before God lowers the boom on them. But the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. And then we have a change of tone to Shebna and Eliakim, a study in leadership. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is in charge of the royal household. What right do you have here and whom do you have here that you've hewn a tomb for yourself here? You who hew a tomb on the height. You who carve a resting place for yourself in the rock among the kings of Judah and you're not one of the kings and you're taking uh, something that doesn't belong to you as a demonstration of your arrogance. Behold, the Lord is about to hurl you headlong, O oh man. He's about to grasp you firmly, roll you tightly like a ball. You'll be cast into a vast country. There you'll die. There your splendid chariots will be. And you, you shame of your master's house. Shevna the scribe. So I know this in a cursory reading of my Bible, that I don't want to follow in the ways of Shevna, the, the head of the household, who's later called Shevna the scribe. Shevna is one of the villains of uh, the Old Testament, one of the losers um, among the children of Israel. And um, there are all kinds of interesting suggestions the rabbis have tried to come to terms with what's exactly going on with Shevna, which we'll talk about perhaps tonight. Then it will come about, verse 20, in that day, that I will summon my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah. I will clothe him with your tunic and tie your sash securely about him. I will entrust him with your authority, and he will become a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. Then I will set the key of the house of David on his shoulder. When he opens, no one will shut. When he shuts, no one will open. And I'll drive him like a peg in a firm place, and he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house, Offspring and issue, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. And that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the, wait a second, it'll break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. There was a little bright spot there. God was going to promote and establish like him. And then the people are going to lean on him too much because they're always looking in the wrong place. They're going to Egypt. We've heard all these oracles against Egypt. They're looking for, um, if they could appease the Assyrians, maybe the Assyrians will, uh, will uh, go easy on us. And they won't. The Assyrians are going to destroy you. Maybe, maybe if we go with the Syro-Ephraimite coalition, the northern kingdom and Syria, maybe that will, no, that's not going to work out for you either. What about, uh, what about, okay, okay, south of Egypt, you've got the Cushites. Nope. There is no nation that you can have recourse to that is going to save you from God's disciplinary corrective wrath at the hands of the Assyrians whom God is bringing. And most interpreters will take what we just read to be a prophecy of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, the actual destruction of the city and the temple in 586 B.C., more than 100 years after Isaiah wrote. Well, I just read to you the entirety of Isaiah 22, and if you're like me, this is one of those places when you give a cursory reading to your Old Testament scriptures, 
it's kind of difficult to understand exactly what he's talking about. We know God is displeased from reading it, and some verses sort of jump out to us. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That, oh, that resonates. That's the way people think, uh, because, because they're, they're not looking beyond their pleasure. They're just living in the moment or something. And, and we can take these little verses that pop out to us and say, these are bad ideas. But when you see the thing in its entirety, it's actually... Um, a consistent accusation of the southern kingdom for not looking in the right direction. They won't have recourse to the God who is their salvation. And he is going to get their attention one way or the other, and they're not going to like how, according to Leviticus 26, he gets their attention with the Babylonian captivity. One of the great interpreters or scholars that has written on um, Isaiah I've mentioned to you before is J. Alec Motyer, uh, an Englishman who, a uh, very able scholar of Hebrew, he sees a lot of the structural things that are kind of elude us. And this is his suggestion of the structure of the Valley of Vision up to verse 14. He suggests that until you get to the two leaders and how God deals with them, with Shevna and Eliakim, that when it's just God talking in this 14-verse oracle about the nation Judah, it works this way as a chiastic, as a center-seeking structure. And I, I think it's pretty neat to see this. You start with them rejoicing up on the rooftops, perhaps, and you end up with them uh, rejoicing despite God's call to humility. And so that's the bookends, is questionable joy and then culpable or objectionable joy. What are you doing up there? Why are you rejoicing? <clears throat> the summary of verses 2 through 4 is there's coming a calamity, and the summary in verses 8 through 11 is that they have brought this calamity on themselves by attempting to defend themselves from God's wrath at the Assyrians because they don't believe in God's wrath. They believe the Assyrians are coming. And they don't understand that their problem is with the one who brought them, not with the Assyrians themselves. Where are you looking? And so the fortifications in verses 8 through 11. And in the middle, you have this, uh, this horrible description of this coming day of God's wrath, the day the Lord has ready for them in verses 5 through 7. I think he's right in his summary of the way the structure works, and hopefully this is the kind of summary that will kind of give you some, some sense of, okay, there is some intentionality, there's some artistry, there's some design to this long 14-verse poem that some of it speaks to us, but we're struggling sometimes to see how the whole thing integrates. So let's, on this idea of joy on the outside and God's wrath on the inside because they won't look at the God who's calling them and calling their attention, let's go verse by verse through it very briefly for the next few minutes. The Oracle of the Valley of Vision. The scholars struggle with why it's called this. It's how the thing begins, the Massah of the, of the gay, uh, ha, his... Hizayon, Hizayon, the, the, the valley of vision. I contend, based on the elements in the poem, the valley of vision is a reference to Judah as the place that is supposed to, of all the nations in the world, focus on the Creator. And the reason for their judgment is in the title. They won't look at Him. The challenge to us is consistent throughout the Scriptures that God wants your attention 
He wants you to pay attention to him. He wants you to think of him. He wants you to hear from him. He wants you to talk to him. He wants you to take on faith, the command, draw near to him, and he'll draw near to you. And this is one thing that we Americans are not generally willing to do. What do I mean? There is anything and everything going on around us to draw our attention away from our Creator. And we'll follow it. We'll get consumed by it. We'll enable ourselves or choose for ourselves to become distracted. Often through our eye gate, through what we're looking at. For some of you, the, the challenge of the political moment is so, it's so intense that you just don't know what to do with yourself. There's an election coming, and it seems like it's the most important election in our time. It's always the most important election in our lifetime because we're sliding off a cliff. And so we're further down than we've ever been. So it's more important than it's ever been because what, we don't know when the crash happens, but it's going to be bad. There's another place in the Bible where God is calling his people to look at him. Does that occur to you as a theme that you know in the scriptures? Anything, does anything else resonate with you about this idea of God saying, look at me, you won't look at me? Yeah, God hung him between heaven and earth. He said he'll draw him into him if he's, if he goes, if he's lifted up in John 3. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus talks about your eyes as the light of the body. And it's a riddle. We read it recently. Remember, it's the one that says, Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. That's the summary. And it's about wealth and whether you're serving God or wealth. Remember how he starts. The eye is the light of the body. And if the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? But if the light in you is good, then the whole body will be filled with light. And what, what, huh? The point is that what you're looking at is going to be the source of illumination. If you're looking at the light, then you have illumination. If you're looking at darkness, then it's darkness. And where are you looking? When he says the eye, he's not saying it itself is the lantern. He's saying what it looks at is the source of the light. The eye, therefore, is the window. It's a light in that sense. And if you're facing the darkness, you're going to be dark. But if you're looking at God, if you're looking at the kingdom and his righteousness, if you're storing up your treasures in heaven, because where your treasures are, your heart will be also. See, it's all about your attention. Are you ready to, to put this to the test? I want to do a thought experiment with you by way of illustration. Let's say that for whatever reason, some of our prayers are answered, not all of us, and the power gets cut off <laughs> and it doesn't come back. I don't know, in 36 days. I'm not making a prediction. I'm just saying you got 36 days. You don't know that, but if it was true... What would you do to prepare yourself for that life-changing emergency? I've lost the rest of some of you for the whole night. You're not going to be able to think about anything else, but what would I do without electricity? Some of you immediately go to refrigeration because you are uh, generated, you have a generator, and you know that that's part of the thing. We live on refrigeration. Our lifestyle radically changes without electricity like Perhaps an instantaneous revolution that has never been experienced in world history. I mean, think about it. If you flip the switch off that we've been kind of developing gradually over the last 150 years, if you flip it off instantly, 
That is a revolution in experience that we have never even, I don't think the world has ever encountered. What will you do? I think a lot of people will lose their minds. A lot of young people, they have no idea what, they're going to have to actually live their lives. They're going to have to actually experience the entirety of a day and, and not find a way to, to cancel their experience of the day in some sort of proxy media event. You know what I mean? Can you sit down, can any of you sit down with a good, fully, fully rested, fully fed and everything, can you sit down and stare at a wall for two hours? Or two hours and 40 minutes? Can you stare at the wall for two hours? Some of you would struggle with that. You'd be like, I've got to go cut the grass or something. I've got to go do something. But it's amazing how if there's a story being told visually with lights and actors in front of my eyes with audio, I could stare at the wall for two and a half hours. But imagine if it all went away. In 36 days, we had no power. Now, the thought experiment doesn't work unless I put a number. I'm not predicting. I'm just saying, what if it happened? It's not a, a, just a fantasy, fantasy scenario if you look at the vulnerabilities of the power grid and all that. The preppers could tell you all about it. What would you do if you knew it was coming? You knew it was coming. You knew without question this was going to happen. You'd have to prioritize. You'd go, okay, 36 days, what are we going to do? What, what do I need on the other end of that that I can set myself up for with that impending calamity because there's no more power it's over we could probably try to some of you are going to stockpile some diesel or propane and run a generator and try to try to nurse it until we get to the next thing but in my made-up scenario there is no next thing it's eventually all going to run out all right so what are you going to what are you going to do you got to cover food you got to cover heat you got to take care of the family. You got to figure out livelihood. No electricity means no gasoline or diesel. It means that you're going to have to figure out transportation without recourse to those things. And so eventually all that goes away because it's all electrically delivered. We, don't, we will not have a way to do that for a long time to deliver fuel without electricity. It's, it's done. So thinking that through, it's like, wow, we got to figure out horses. If we're going to ever go anywhere faster than at the, the, the rate of LPCs, leather personnel carriers. A good clip, four miles an hour, if you're in really good shape, right? Makes church a challenge. Some of you live further from here than four miles. See what I mean? Like the way your lifestyle would change would be so radical. And you're, what is easy now would become very hard in many ways. You would go to a subsistence lifestyle like our great-grandparents and their grandparents understood. And we would be closer to the ground for sure we'd be more grateful for our meal when we got it and we'd be more aware that it's a privilege every time we receive one we'd be impoverished like we haven't experienced as a people in generations it could happen but what shouldn't change under those conditions is our attention to god Maybe we should get more attentive to him as we go through hardship, as we face the question of how dependent is our medical situation on electricity. Those people with diabetes are in immediate, immediate emergency because you have to refrigerate insulin. And we don't have a synthesized way to do insulin yet. And so 
prepper people will tell you that's a big problem on day one is insulin. Of course, I'm not praying for this to happen. But if it did happen, what would your life be like? It would be completely different. But would it be ruined? Would your life be over because you're growing your food, you're storing your food, you're figuring out the things that our, our, our ancestors knew how to do? Or would you take it in stride, take it a day at a time, and thank God for your life and for the opportunity to focus on Him just like He's always afforded you that opportunity to focus on Him? Judah is facing total national disaster. The generation that first encountered Nebuchadnezzar's chariots was in 605 B.C., and it included Daniel and his companions. And they encountered a radical transformation of their lifestyle, a national disaster that changed everything for them. But those whose focus was on the Lord, that's where it remained. And they were successful, and that's the story of Daniel 1 through 6. The reason I ask you to think about this, the way your life would change, is because we don't focus on our Creator a lot of times unless we're in trouble. Maybe that's why sometimes we have to go through hardship. So we'll focus on Him. And I wanted to give you a little artificial trouble to to think through tonight. Israel is facing an incredible national disaster because of their lack of attention And there may be an analogy with our nation as a Gentile nation that is not Israel or in any way related to God's covenant promises to Israel. But maybe we're in it for um, the way God has spoken about these Gentile nations for their arrogance. What is with you? He says, you feminine singular. You second person feminine singular ending. What is with you? And it's the nation personified as a woman. That you, again, the pronouns are inflected that you've gone up all of you to the rooftop and so then we're talking about a singular but then all of you it means the nation you're going up to the rooftop when i first read this i think are they going up there to hide from the from the oncoming soldiers or are they going up to celebrate and it doesn't say filled with noises a boisterous city an exultant town they're having a party in verses one and two and then it switches your pierced ones not pierced by the sword The word halal means pierced, pierced by, pierced of, cherub, of sword. It says slain in your Bible, perhaps in your English translation, but the word is to puncture a hole through, and it uses it twice. Your pierced ones, those those that belong to you who are pierced, not pierced by the sword. They did not die in battle, which is an interesting Thing. What's the destruction factor? And I believe what he's saying is you're destroyed from within. You're, you've, you've hurt yourselves. It's either that, or sometimes this word halal, halal can be used to describe what happens when armies march on civilian populations to the, the weaker among us. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow, they've been captured. All your found ones, the matzah, the word for, for fine, all those that have been found um, are captured, have been captured together, though from far, far they fled. They, they ran a long way, but they've still been captured. And this is our first chiastic arrangement in the passage. On the outside, you have the leaders fleeing on the one hand and the population, the not leaders fleeing. And in the middle, there's been a capturing of them without 
military engagement. So they didn't put up a big fight, whatever this vision is, whatever he's talking about. Therefore, I said what I said about, Isaiah says what he said about his vision of, um, of the Babylonian destruction. Look away from me. I will weep bitterly. Do not urge me to have comfort is the literal, uh, which will translate console me, don't console me, concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. I have to see this vision. He's got an oracle, a vision of this destruction, and he's, as it were, seeing it. And he says, because of what he sees, there is nothing but pain for me in the knowing that this is coming. And this is an important moment to talk about pain. God's man is fit, according to Isaiah 6, to carry God's message. It's an honor for Isaiah to be Isaiah, the great prophet. It's an honor, but it hurts at times. And he's told us this more than once. And he's not the weeping prophet. That's Jeremiah. In a world that is opposed to the Creator, those who serve the Creator and adopt his attitude and his priorities by his grace are going to face the fact that we're in a world opposed to him, so therefore to us. And it's going to hurt. In this case, the pain is because he sees the destruction of his people and the thought of his nation being burned to the ground is horrific to him. So it is with us. I love my flag. I have worn the uniform of my country in an overseas deployment in war with the flag on the uniform. That's what you do when you go to war is you put the flag on our uniform. It was a great honor to do that. And the idea of the wickedness being receiving its comeuppance is a tragic thought. And it is for Isaiah, but it's, it's nevertheless what righteousness will dictate in this case in the story of God's dealings with Judah. I don't predict national disaster for our country on any timeline. I just ponder like, like Habakkuk on the rooftop, how long? How long will this keep going like this? We said each election is the most important one because of the downward spiral of the toilet bowl. We're more like the judges probably than any other phase of Israel's history. Everyone's doing whatever's right in his own eyes. We forget the creator, get in trouble, we call out to him. 9-11, the American flags come out, people start coming to church again. All right, so Isaiah suffers because of the revelation he gets from God. And that is the way it works sometimes. Sometimes it hurts to receive God's word and to know God's agenda. But it only hurts not because God is unrighteous or mean or any of this. It hurts because these are the consequences that must attend wickedness. And it's the wickedness that draws the wrath and so it hurts to see the outcome. Now we shift gears from Isaiah's experience of the vision to his description of what's coming. For it will be, is not in there, it will be, has to be supplied. But he says, for a day, a yom of Mahuma, of Mavusa, and of Mabuka. And what you just heard was an intentional assonance, like, like rhyming and uh, sound, these three descriptions of what's coming. The descriptions of God's destruction of Judah, Judah, and I believe 
under the Babylonian captivity. He'll reference the nation that's coming as Elam and Kir, uh, which are part of the, the, the geographic arrangement of the Neo-Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar. It's, it's kind of oblique, the, the nation that's coming. We don't have any story of the Persians destroying Jerusalem. That's not part of the, I mean, that's not part of the history, the way this is developed. And so it's either Assyria or Babylon, and I take it to be Babylon because it's, the Assyrians don't fully destroy Judah. They only destroy most of it. But it could be Assyri- the Assyrians. But anyway, it will be a day of Mahuma. Mahuma is dismay. Mavusha is, Mavusa is trampling like soldiers walking on your soil um, or their their horses uh, trampling. And is it Mavuka? Yeah, Mavuka, Mavuka is confusion. And so he's intentionally using these sound-alike words, dismay, trampling, confusion, to um, highlight sort of poetically the way this is summarized. It's dismay, it's trampling, it's confusion. And it's for Adonai. For, for Adonai, for unto, toward, belonging to Adonai. This is the word for Lord, L-O-R-D in lowercase O-R-D. means the boss, the master, the husband, Adonai. And then he calls him Yahweh. That's why in your Bible it says Lord God, it capitalizes God. It's Adonai, the actual word for Lord, then the sacred name of God in Israel, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God who identifies himself as the self-existent one, and then Savaoth. Sava'oth, and y'all know Sava'oth is of the armies or of the hosts. Lord Sava'oth, his name from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. Luther apparently believed that Sava'oth references his military uh, uniform, that God shows up as not just the, the Lord of the many, but the Lord of the many troops. So that's why we think a Sava' or the many Sava's, the Sava'oth, the feminine plural is oath, is armies, and I've translated Lord of the Armies, in the Valley of Vision. This is the summary of what God is bringing to them in the Valley of Vision. It's the second time he's mentioned in the the poem, Valley of Vision, and it's a riddle. Why is it called the Valley of Vision? This is not something Judah or Jerusalem are ever called. Theologians have pondered this. Judah is situated, Jerusalem is situated on a hill but it's surrounded by other hills that are higher. And so you could say it makes a kind of a valley among the hills in its setting. And so some have said, well, that, that's why it's the valley. And, and uh, well, all the visions that Isaiah received were in Jerusalem because he's part of court and that's where he's a Judahite. So must be the, that this is where he received his visions. But I don't, th- I don't think that's why he calls it the valley of vision primarily. I think that Israel is about to go, Judah is about to go through a very dark, death-shadowed valley and I think it's because they won't look at their creator. I believe that's thematically the reason. And it's therefore very convicting for us because we get so easily distracted ourselves. And then he says, because of shouting a shout, and this says, makar kar kir, and no scholars will, will tell you they know for sure what that means, but it's probably uh, a coined way of saying shouting a shout because there's... Um, there's shouting a shout and screaming to the mountain, to Hahar, because of the horror that Isaiah described in verse 4. This is, if you were filming it and Isaiah was narrating, you would hear 
as the sound editors put in some raging, horrific, wailing screams of people in great distress. That's what McCarkark here seems to be doing. And so I differ with the, the English translation in my Bible that says um, breaking down of walls. I don't think that's what it means. I think it means screaming in horror. <laughs> in Isaiah chapter 21 and 22, both times, he says that he sees something that makes him sick. And it, you're more describing the prophet's experience of the horror of the vision than the contents of the vision itself. Elam raised the quiver. Did this happen already, or is this going to happen in the future? We take this to be prophetic future statements described as complete and so settled that this is going to happen. For the most part, when it's past tense in this poem, it's stuff that is coming in judgment for them. And so he calls Elam, which is an old name for the Persians. And it's also a place name, and it is a place that would be included in the sweep of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, Babylonian kingdom. They raised the quiver with the chariots of men, horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. So there's a military force that's coming in the summary in verse 6. So much of our federal budget is spent on military. So much of the scriptures in describing the horrors that people go through are military descriptions. God's instrument to warn Israel to be faithful to their conditional covenant with him at, the, at Mount Sinai, God's instrument is military invasion and conquest and destruction. The destruction of your children, of your families, of your wives. This is always something that God says. You're here in the land. In fact, he brought them in as an army that was numbered in the book of Numbers. They were brought in as an army to dispossess the Canaanites and eradicate them and to take their land. It's a military invasion that establishes them in the land and gives them their inheritance. And it is a military invasion that will remove them from the land and dispossess them just as they dispossess the Canaanites. They're not better than the Canaanites for their position as the covenant people of God. In fact, God removes them because they're like the Canaanites when he finally does it for their idolatry. But what I'm saying is that uh, the reason why so much of your tax money goes to the military is because as far as we know, it's as bad as it gets. What human beings do to human beings when they have the power to do whatever they want. And that exercise of force is what the military is. People have said that military is diplomacy by their means. Okay. But you don't really want to think that way when, you're, uh, when your house is invaded and your family is destroyed by soldiers, young men, who consider you objects for their pleasure and destruction and then just do whatever they feel like doing in a feverish, demonized bloodlust. It's a horrible thing for military to march on your soil. This is why we have military fairs. This is why we have military forces. And historically, why we have as a people honored the men who would go and fight our wars. We honor them in part because we want them to be honorable. 
And that's a reflection on the people, the culture, the, the nature of the individuals in the, in the nation. But it's a, it's a messy business. It's been said the military is designed to kill people and break things. That's a good summary. And it's, it's terrible that this is necessary. In our experience in the last, um, well, since, what, 1812? For the most part, with the exception of 9-11 and a couple of other isolated incidents, it's been our practice since they burned our capital, the British burned our capital in 1812, it's been our practice to go find the fight where they are and not fight them here uh, when it's too late to go where they are. People have said, for example, that the... Um, the Iraq war didn't accomplish anything because eventually we gave Iraq back and it's being all run over by the ISIS thing and all the terrorists and all the Sunni and Shia stuff. And, and then Afghanistan, of course, we gave it to the Taliban and all those billions of dollars of money, of, of, uh, of military equipment. We equipped an entire army's worth of, of Taliban radicals and what are we, just, just miles from our only ally in the region with all that American material. Don't get me started on the stupidity and the uh, Isaiah 19 Egyptian leadership that has given this nightmare to uh, the world affairs right now. But regardless, um, the idea that we fought a war that we shouldn't have fought by going to Iraq is a very popular talking point people make. And I think it's wrong because of all the terrorists that met us at the battlefield that we selected in the middle of their ancestral caliphate. We did fight a great deal of what would have been a battle on our soil had we not been in Iraq. I believe that. And, um, and the argument from the left is, no, you made terrorists by being there. And I believe, no, we provided an outlet because we said that was enough of our buildings for you to do that too. Let's do it in your backyard. And um, I don't like how it's gone since and all that, but I would never say that we didn't accomplish anything for our nation or our future. But really, it's moot because this world is not my home. And in the sense of what are we doing here, what's our mission, I want to provide a, a nation for my children to inherit. I want their children to thrive in, in this country and serve God and freedom and have the access to the Word of God and not be afraid to meet in public and to pre- preach Christ wherever they want. I, I want them to have that. But it doesn't seem to be going that way because of where our attention is. What I'm trying to dramatize for you in verse 6 is that military affairs are the worst. And the idea of the military coming to your door is so much worse than the idea of having a standing army that can uh, overdrive your civil government or something. So much worse to have an enemy army come in and treat you like animals that it's worth it to have the standing military. And it's why you spend all this money. And so the takeaway, I think, here in terms of our time in which we live is pray for your soldiers, sailors, and airmen, Marines, Coast Guards, men, because um, they're being asked to do something that they have no philosophical basis to do anymore. And um, so we should definitely keep them before the throne. It will happen that your choice valleys, in your choice valleys, uh, chariots, it will happen that your choice valleys, chariots will fill. It happened. I think I put all these in past tense. That your the chariots filled your choice valleys is the proleptic look at the sort of future past, the way he's saying it. 
The horsemen set fixed positions at the gate. So you get fully infiltrated. Now, the Assyrians did this in Judah in 701. And we learned about this in the story of, uh, of uh, Rav Shaka. And, and, and this could be a reference to that, but I don't think it is. So he removed the veil of protection from Judah. And you looked in that day to the weapons of the house of the forest. The house of the forest seems to be a place where uh, there, was a, there was a palace built for the kings in Judah in 1 Kings that um, would have been the armory. So the house of the forest was something they knew in that day. It doesn't mean they're cutting lances or something to go fight with sticks. It means that there was a place they had, most scholars would agree, that was where they would um, stockpile their equipment or their money or their weapons or both. The breaches of the city of David, you saw there were many, and you gathered together the water of the lower pool. The houses of Jerusalem you numbered, you tore down the houses to build the wall, and a reservoir you made between the two walls for the water of the old pool. But you did not look at him who made it. Now, all these preparations they made, um, I think Motyer's right, this has already happened in their time. In 2 Kings 20, 20 and 2 Chronicles 32, 30, we have a reference to Hezekiah's works with the irrigation. Now, the rest of the acts of Hezekiah and all his might, how he made the pool and the conduit, and brought water into the city. Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In 2 Chronicles 32.30, it was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all that he did. There's a footnote in the life of Hezekiah that he had this great irrigation project, which Isaiah is probably referencing here, which was a preparation. You know, in 36 days, you're going to lose your lifestyle. You're going to have to have water and so he made preparation for them to have water. And that's a good thing to do. You need to make sure that people can have water. But what they missed, the thing that they missed is 11b. You did not look at him who made it. The thing that my Bible translated as, uh, to, to what did they say in verse 11? They said, um, you did not depend on. They translated depend on. But this, beloved, is the valley of vision. You did not Nabah, no, you did not look at. Nabah, one of the, it's where we get the word for prophet, and Navi is a seer. You didn't regard with intent. Your attention was in the wrong direction. You had a vision that wasn't the right vision. You were looking at him. You did not look at him who made it. Him who formed it from long ago, you did not consider. So you got, you rearranged the water, but you didn't look at the maker of the water. You set yourself up with some provision, but you didn't think of where that ultimately come from. And that's the problem with you people in Judah is you're not looking at your creator. This is the valley of vision because you're about to go through the valley of the shadow of death because you won't look at the creator. Notice the chiastic structure in verse 11b. You did not nava, you did not look, you did not ra'ah, you did not consider or see. Synonyms, stock words in Hebrew for looking and seeing that have nuances that could imply concentration or focus or even maybe depend but looking to him is the theme of the valley of the vision the one who made it one who formed it from long ago the creator so this is the problem of judah it's the problem of the united states and there's a great application for us as a people and the way that works in our country is at an individual level your problem believer in jesus christ in the year 2022 is your attention Remember that place in 1 John that says when we, are, when we see him as he is, we'll be as he is because we see him. There's a, there's a connection to seeing the Lord Jesus 
that makes us like him. We're getting that in a trickle phase right now. The more you look at him, the more you're focused on him, the more you become like him, the more you're having your thoughts renovated. This is the word of God in the hearts of the people. It's the only way to look at him. Can't look up in the heavens, right? He's not there any more than he's right here beside you or anywhere else. What I'm saying is that you can't physically see him, but you know him from what he says, propositional. And you've got to get that through language and the function of language and its revelation in the scriptures like we're doing right now. This is the basis for God's challenge and discipline of Judah as they didn't look at him. They ignored him. How did they manage to do that? They had the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. They had the cloudy pillar. They had the Shekinah, or the manifestation of God's presence among them. They could look out at the tabernacle and say, God's there, God's with us. How do they not know, or how do they not focus on him? Well, they were distracted. They had urges in their own God-given appetites that had been corrupted by their sinful natures. And they wanted to satisfy God-given appetites like sex and food. They wanted to satisfy these appetites sinfully instead of God's way because they weren't looking at the one who made them. And they became a product of their feelings and their lusts. And you can read about it in Romans 1, 18 through 32. We ignore the creator and then we start focusing on the creation. And I borrow from Philippians 3, our God becomes our stomach. Our stomach is our God. We set our minds on earthly things. It's the problem throughout the scriptures. It's the problem of every day of our lives. Where are you looking? The valley of vision is about being distracted. And you say, distraction, that's really, that's low grade. That's not high voltage. They're just distracted? That's the problem? It's deadly. It's worse than we think. And it's easy to slide into. And the standards don't change. God's way doesn't change. His desire for you every day, every moment of the day doesn't change just because you ignore him. My ignorance of God doesn't mean that, uh, well, he's going to change the way he feels about me. It means that he's still just as waiting for me, having been in a far country, to come home as he sees me from a long way off, right? Like in Luke 15. And here's what we do with the standards. We invent our version of the standard. I didn't meet it. It must have been too high. I misunderstood what I've learned in life from my feelings and my experience is that the standard is down here now. Well, hello, God. You're now deciding what's right and wrong. And that's not what we ever say. In fact, we need to repent or change our thinking of any kind of misunderstanding that way and go back to what God says is the standard. He wants you. He wants all of you. And he knows that you're not resurrected yet. He knows you're struggling with a sin nature. He knows that there are many competing things for your attention, for your time, for your focus, for your devotion. And he knows that none of those things is nearly as satisfying, fulfilling, or desirable now or in eternity than him. And the challenge is, what do you choose? There's always, beloved, a right choice. You don't get to decide whether it's right or wrong. You don't get to decide what the right choice is. You get to decide if you'll make it. God is the one who decides whether it's right or wrong. We're the ones that decide whether we'll choose the right course. That's the wisdom of Proverbs. That's Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. God is in charge of whether it's right or wrong. You get to choose whether you follow it. Have you heard people say you can't legislate morality? It's a, it's a fancy bumper sticker. 
What they mean is, by law, you're not going to get a moral people. You can't force morality on people. They won't become moral just because the law is. They'll find a way around it. But if you think about that and unpack the bumper sticker a little more, you can't legislate morality. Wait a second. Every legislation, every law has a moral basis. There's some standard of right and wrong on which I make this legal enactment. So now you're not going to change people, but every law is a statement about morality. All right. The problem with Israel, the problem with me, the problem with you is attention. And we're not in charge of the right or wrong of it. We're in charge to make the choice for the right or the wrong choice. So then he will call who? Adonai Yahweh of the armies. That's Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth. In that day he will call for crying, for funerary wailing, for baldness and for wearing sackcloth. The baldness here is that we're not... We've shaved, shaven heads in mourning. All the glory, all the reason for exaltation is, is removed because I am broken before him. This is Isaiah's uh, heart's cry when he sees the righteousness of God embodied and says, I'm, woe is me for I'm ruined. This is what the Ninevites, the wicked Assyrians did in Jonah when they heard the message of Jonah. They did what is described here, but not Judah. But behold, what God wanted was this, but behold, joy and gladness. Sasun, Sason, hey Sason, Sason and Simcha, joy and gladness. Kill cattle and slaughter sheep, infinitives being used imperatively. Kill cattle and slaughter sheep, eat meat and drink wine, eat and drink for tomorrow we die, is the hue and cry of the people. And um, one interpreter suggested, perhaps I think he might be right, that when it says, tomorrow we die, it's mocking Isaiah. We know that the people are not receiving his message. They don't respond to what he says. He's the guy that tells the truth, and it goes unheard and ignored. And then 100 years later, what he said happens will happen. This happened to a lot of the prophets. Jesus said, which one of your prophets did, did which one of God's prophets did you not kill? Your, your father's not kill. He was uncovered. He, he was uncovered in my ears is literally um, nephal for uncovered, galah. He was third singular. He was uncovered in my ears. Yahweh, Sabaoth. The Lord of the armies was uncovered in my ears. You could paraphrase that. God was revealed to me. But the, but the flavor, the, the Hebrew what he's actually saying and what the people are hearing is God was uncovered in my ears. So there's a revelation that comes to me by auditory is the idea. Certainly it will not be forgiven this sin for until for you until you die. It says Adonai Yahweh Sabaoth. That this is what I called for sackcloth and ashes. And what I got was eat and drink for tomorrow you die. All right. This is it. That last statement of this is not going to be forgiven till you die is why I connect what he's talking about here with Habakkuk and Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about what's going to happen in 605, 597, and 586 B.C. with the Babylonians. Why is it called the Valley of Vision? Because of where they're looking, or rather where they won't look. Have you ever had a dog that uh, just will not look you in the eye as a puppy? I play the game with a little puppy. I'm not proposing 
cruelty to animals in any way. I'm just saying, you get that little puppy, he's got a little puppy milk breath, and you want him to look you in the eye, and it's not their nature. There's, a, there's something going on with this, but sometimes, some of them will. They'll hold your gaze for a second, and then they'll look away. But for a lot of them, they just will not look no matter what you do. You hold them this way, and, you, and, they, and they look away no matter what. They're not going to meet your eyes. Babies are this way sometimes, too, and it's very, very comical. When any one of you, uh, Rosalind monkeys, uh, coming up as little bitty kids, when you would, um, that's you. But everybody look at my kids. <laughs> when you Rosalinds, as little boys, little bitty boys, would um, get in a mood, there was no way I could get you to look at me. And it, was, it would be so funny to try. You've, y'all have probably done this with a baby where he's just, not, he's just not engaging personally. But you still try to. And you move around to where you can get him to look at you. And when he finally does, if, he, if he's in a frame where when, when he catches that he's seeing you and he's old enough to do that as a baby, it'll register and he'll smile or he'll react. But for a while there, it was like just trying to get that baby to look at me. I had an experience. I've had a lot of experience with this. God is telling you to look at me through the entire oracle. It's very simple. Notice his protocol method. How did he send this message to his people? He sent Isaiah. Isaiah is saying this, where the people hear it. And now they have to make a choice. They've had signs, they've had wonders, they've had the signs of the prophet come true. They've had the prophet calling them out by virtue of Deuteronomy and what God has already said to Israel. He's a prosecuting attorney using that established law to to, to judge them, to accuse them, as God sends them to do. And they won't hear it. Not much has changed, Preston City Bible Church, not much has changed since Isaiah's day regarding the human race and paying attention to what God is saying. Watching the way the seminary is, Schaefer Theological Seminary, what, we're, what we just did was a lot of work. It took a long time to get where we could read it in Hebrew and think about it and translate it and present it. It was a lot of work, and I've worked on this a long time, and it's still a lot of work. It always is. And the students are finding that this is a lot of work. It's hard. There's, and we, we at Chafer are trying to turn around the courses that we received in our schooling and share the love. It hurts. It's hard. It's a lot of work. And what we're finding is that um, it's worth doing. It's infinitely worth doing, but it's work. Father, we thank you for the work you've called us to, partly to concentrate on your things, to think your thoughts, to want what you want, to focus on you. Thank you for the Valley of Vision, where we're seeing that Israel's judgment was because of their attention. And we've seen so many reasons you've given, like their idolatry the wickedness, the violence, all the, the symptoms, but the root cause seems to be with all these systems of diversion and distraction, they won't look at you. Father, that's true of us at times. We know. We thank you for the conviction that we receive from these Old Testament oracles and the joy we have in knowing that when we look at you, you're refining us, you're refreshing us, you're blessing us in ways that we can't even imagine. Help us consider these things. Help us see your word as it is, the riches of your grace as they are. Help us lay hold of these things and walk worthy of our calling in a spiritual walk empowered by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name.
Amen.